Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins of Empire. Well, here we are again. This is the end of the second book in the Ruins of Empire series, but not the end of the story. Keep a watch on your podcast feed as we will be throwing out updates, short stories, and other goodies as we get close to releasing the third book in the series, Juno Manetta. And of course, if you want to support our efforts, the books you have listened to are available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And as always, thank you for listening and being with me on this weird journey. And without further ado, the final chapter of Ruins of Empire number two, Templum Venerus. You are listening to Ruins of Empire, Templum Venerus, book two of the Ruins of Empire Project, a serial podcast novel by Jeremy L. Jones, read by the author. Chapter 32. In a Christmas address, apparently transmitted to a fledgling colony, the Lady of Fire appears to bid farewell to her people. Good night, Cytheria. When you get this, I suppose it will be Christmas morning here. Christmas always reminds me of the way things were before the war. I remember being a little girl and leaving my sock out for Bembielno in exchange for trinkets. I remember skipping midnight mass to lay on the beach with my boyfriend. I remember the last time I saw the Christmas fireworks of Santos. They were amazing to behold. This land, our land, was once so beautiful. Tell your children. Tell them about the majestic Amazon and the Cristo Redemptor. Tell them about the beaches of Impanima and the wondrous highlands. Tell them there are still people who remember them. Tell them we will fight forever if we must. From the Fall. First Addendum. The Brazilian Wars Rediscovered by Martin Raff. Vago stood near the shuttle and watched as the last of the sun's disk crept below the mountains on the eastern horizon. The hazy atmosphere of Venus illuminated with stunning reds, greens, and purples. A sunset like this lasted a minute or less on Earth, but here, with Venus's slow rotation, it went on for almost an hour, long enough for Vago to sit and really take in the beauty. The shuttle's engines kicked on with a high-pitched whine. They would be leaving soon. Nearby, hundreds of Casario streamed towards Cytheria city gates. Among them, he saw Alexandra, Daphne, and their small army of children being escorted by Gabriel. A little girl, skinny and clad in something resembling a burlap bag, tugged on the captain's red cloak. He stopped and hoisted the child into his arms, then stopped to wave at Vago, standing at the entrance to the shuttle's cargo bay. He tipped his hat and watched the newly united family walk as one to the Via Maximiliano. Vago wanted to believe that a new age of peace and cooperation was beginning on Venus, but it wasn't going to be that simple. It never was. The kind of hate and animosity that the two groups experienced is not something that is cured by a public handshake and a banishment. There were, no doubt, Cytherian citizens who were very happy with the status quo and who wouldn't take kindly to their former enemy living next door. Casario, striving for a better life, would find their progress impeded by old hatreds and prejudices. Both groups would have to live together, with reminders of the ancient conflict all around them. The Modesto Wall the statues in the courtyard, the Sala Gran. If anyone in the city had sense, they'd take hammers to it all, crush it all to powder, scatter it to the winds, and let that awful memory fade with the death 
of the last man who said the word Arinha wistfully. But people rarely had sense. It would be a long struggle, one that would last long after Vega was dead. But good things would happen, horrible things as well. That was the nature of the world, be it Earth or Venus. Isra walked out of the shuttle's cargo bay holding a metal flask. She looked at him with her one remaining eye and held it out. Care for a drink? Vago took the flask. What's the word from the ministry? Isra sighed deeply. Vago saw a twitch in her eye, which was as close as Isra ever got to breaking down. They are not happy. Vago took a drink of the whiskey in the flask. They ain't ever happy, Isra. Think it takes a thorny branch up here, you'll see you'll yuck to even be considered for the job. Easter cracked a slight smile, but it didn't last. They consider the whole mission a failure. Not only do we not start friendly relations with the local government, we led a revolt to overthrow it. They are worried that whatever government eventually takes control will want nothing to do with Earth. That is, assuming the corporation does not swoop in while the government here struggles to consolidate power and support. Easter took the flask to take a generous swallow herself. Vega waved at another small group of Casario making their way to the city. The people here are going to be okay. We've done a good thing here. Can't the Ministry see that? They do not see it that way. All they see is a civilization in turmoil because of our actions. There are talks of ending the Human Reconnection Project entirely. I am afraid to say this, but the project's future, and my career, are both going to fare about as well as the Arenha. Isra sighed and her posture deflated. She looked up and added, The sunsets are pretty here. Vago nodded. It's gonna get dark soon. The nights here last six months. It will be much longer than that. Scytheria may never come out of it. She turned and slinked back into the shuttle. Vago was about to follow her, but decided she might rather be alone. Nothing he could say would change anything. The sun was down, and the last light was fading when Althea came into view, walking in the middle of a group of Corsario. She was having the type of conversation that could only be held with a few words spoken very loudly and slowly, along with an impressive amount of hand gestures. Althea made friends wherever she went. Althea waved goodbye to the group and made her way to the shuttle. Good evening, Vago. Evening. How are the patients? Althea let out a long, exasperated sigh. As well as can be expected with primitive medicine. Most will make it through, although I'm completely out of antibiotics and painkillers now. Also... She reached into her black medical bag and pulled out a large bundle of herbs bound in twine. You gave me this. It's for Roncha. I can't wait to have it tested on Earth. If their tea has such beneficial effects, there's no telling what compounds we can derive from it. Vago grimaced at the bundle. Stinks like pond water filtered through a litter box. Althea replaced the bundle. Well, I wasn't exactly interested in its culinary applications. Are we all set to leave? Nearly. Colton just started the warm-up sequence, and we're still waiting on Kronos. Vago glanced over her shoulder at the balding figure making his way toward the ship. Speak of the horny little devil. Althea rolled her eyes and started to walk into the ship. Be nice to him. Vago called back. When am I not nice? Kronos's thin frame was straining under the weight of a heavy backpack, no doubt filled with all manner of technological nonsense. He walked with an odd quickness in his step. Well, everything Kronos did was odd, but this was particularly so. It was almost as if he was hoping to trot right past Vega without having to answer any uncomfortable questions, which was not going to happen. Just as Kronos was about to step aboard the ship, Vega crossed in front of him. Kronos, you're late. Kronos stopped and shifted the weight on his back. There was much to finish before I left. 
There is untold information about Earth before the fall on those computers. I had to download what I could and install a transmitter that would allow NuvoNet remote access in the future. It still needs calibration before I leave this world. I should do that. Kronos tried to step around Vago, and, if he were a kind man, he would have let him. As it was, he took another step in his path. How'd you get on with Joanna? He asked with a knowing grin. Uh, well, it's not exactly the electric bordello, and Joanna's a girl with class. That's not to say she can't... Well, I mean, she could, and she did, several times. But I don't feel like... Vago wasn't a kind man, but he wasn't strictly cruel either. Birk Beljeg, Birgogjeg, Kios, Kronos. I don't need a play-by-play, just asking if everything ended all right with you two. Kronos cracked a semi-guilty grin. We found some common ground. And did you two? Vago made a strange but guessable gesture with his hands. Coitus? By all standard definitions. What about non-standard definitions? Kronos grinned again. Some of those, too. And how was it? It was perfectly flawed. Before Vago could say anything else, Kronos slipped past him into the relative safety of the shuttle. Vago watched the little man slip up the spiral staircase to the crew cabins, then turn back to see the last light fade from the Venetian landscape. Perfectly flawed. An interesting way of putting it. Leave it to the net, baby, to come up with a laconic phrase for all relationships. Maybe all of reality. He turned to push the button to close the cargo bay door and disappeared inside the shuttle. Within a couple of hours, they were in low orbit over Venus, and the captain fired the final thrusters that would take them to Earth. It would be another three-month trip back, another three months of hibernation. Vago hated hibernation. When he arrived on Earth, he would have been away for over half a year. All that time would pass by instantly for him. He would lay down in the hibernation pod, close his eyes, and wait for the drugs. Next thing he knew, he'd wake up feeling like three-day-old roadkill. No dreams, no rest. Just a head like a muddy swamp and a body like overstressed rubber bands. Before that happened, there was one more thing that he needed to do, and it couldn't wait three months. He floated down the hallway to the hibernation chamber, stopped outside one of the crew cabins, and knocked. Yes, Vago, said Althea from the other side. He slid open the door. I just thought it'd be a good idea before. He realized at that moment that she was in a semi-dressed state, trying to slip into the nearly sheer sensor array for hibernation. Vago spun himself around as soon as he realized. Sorry, Althea. I didn't mean. Althea laughed softly. It's not like you to be embarrassed. Vago gulped. I just... Well, I wanted to talk to you in seriousness. Didn't want you to think I was trying to sneak a peek or nothing. This time, Althea laughed outright. Easter, let's go of a mission. Kronos gets over his awkward nature enough to talk a woman into bed with him, and you want to get serious. Well, well, well. Isn't Venus a treasure trove of miracles? It's okay. Actually, why don't you help me with this? Vago turned around. Althea had her back to him with the zipper on the rear of the suit almost all the way down. The suits had a long enough cord attached to the back that a person could zip it up by themselves. It was cumbersome, but it could be done. That meant Althea was throwing him a bone. But he wasn't sure why yet. He pushed himself forward and put his hand on either side of her waist, just to stabilize himself in zero-g. She gathered her floating hair up while he slowly slid the zipper up her back. She smelled sweet. She always did. But after a couple of days in the heat and dust of Cytheria, something about it came out more. So what did you want to talk about? said Althea. It was just that 
Well, before, Vago stammered, well, when things are going bad on Venus, you talked about leaving the project. You ain't still gonna do that, right? That's up to Easter, I suppose. To be fair, the way she is talking, there might not be much of a project when we get back to Earth. Vago pulled the zipper all the way to the top, and Althea let her hair go again and spun around. Yeah, she said pretty much the same thing to me, Vago said, keeping his eyes on everything except her body. The thing is, well, if there ain't going to be no project or if you leave, I don't want to not see you anymore. And I was wondering if, when we get back to Earth, if you'd like to see one another, say drinks or something similar. Althea just smiled. It was one of the most beautiful smiles he'd ever seen, which probably meant she wasn't going to give him the answer he wanted. That's really sweet, Vago. She started to pull her way past him, and he slid the door open for her. That ain't a yes. She paused before going out into the hallway. I'm not sure that'd be a good idea. Our history hasn't been exactly... Well, we always find each other when we're at our worst. Out of hell with your good ideas, he said, still floating in the doorway. Tell me, what part of calling the Arenha to the carpet for infanticide constituted a good idea? You knew there was something wrong with Cytheria, even while she had us dancing like puppets on her little strings. You feel it when things aren't right, and you aim to change it. I don't know much, Althea, but I didn't feel right for months before you plowed through my door. I know things ain't gonna be right for you either. Maybe you're feeling like the whole world has turned on you, or maybe it didn't want you. I say to hell with the rest of the world. They don't deserve you. Not saying us weirdos on the fringe of civilization do either, but, well, we appreciate the way you class up the joint. Vega reached down and took her hand. I guess what I'm saying is that I want to try this. Althea paused. And when it all goes wrong? Vago shrugged. Well, then at least we know. So what do you say? Not saying nothing will happen, just asking you to let me take you somewhere nice. Althea sighed. No, absolutely not. She pulled herself into the hallway and started floating toward the hibernation chamber. Sod nice. I want to go to the darkest hole in Orchester. Some place where we can drink terrible beer and I can watch you brawl with the first man who looks at me wrong. Althea got a grip on the handrail just above the hatch to the hibernation chamber. She paused there for a moment until Vago caught up with her. Then, with no warning, she lunged forward and kissed him. It was just a quick peck on the lips. Nothing passionate, just a small show of affection and perhaps a promise. With that, she opened the hatch, pulled herself inside, and closed the door behind her. Vago took off his hat to wipe the sweat from his head. He floated by the closed hatch for several seconds before he pushed himself away and went to his own quarters to get ready. Vago always hated hibernation, but as he squeezed himself into the sensor array suit, he couldn't help but smile. At least this time, he would have something good to wake up to. It was so late it was almost morning at the Colombian Province Radio Telescope installation, and Isra stood outside to watch the sunrise. Venus was a few degrees above the horizon, and soon it would disappear in the glare of the sun. She let out a deep breath and watched it condense into fog in the freezing air. The door to the control room opened, and Joseph stuck his head out. There you are. It's freezing. What are you doing out here? Isra breathed out another cloud of fog. I had to realign the dish again. It seemed like a good time to come out for a little fresh air. I just put some tea on. Would you like some? He asked. Easter smiled. That would be nice. 
She sat down at a table in a cramped kitchen area as Joseph retrieved a couple of cups. Investigation still going on? Why do you think I have been spending so much time here lately? She leaned back in the chair. It will be fine. There were some in the ministry that were lining up to press charges, but they do not have evidence of any wrongdoing. Luckily, it is hard to prove if one is actually responsible for instigating a revolution. At this point, it is more politically expedient to let the whole incident fade into memory, along with my crew and me. He set a steaming cup and saucer in front of her. Without thinking, she reached out to grab it and ended up knocking it forward, spilling some liquid in the process. Joseph took in a sharp breath as he looked at her. She could feel him looking at the black eye patch with the edge of the rounded, diamond-shaped scar peeking out from the top and the bottom. I'm sorry, Isra. I should have. It is fine, said Isra, taking the cup. I am learning to live with it, and there are some advances in cybernetics I am considering. He sat down across from her and smiled. I'm glad to hear that. Although I confess, I find the patch to be very... What's the word? Rakish? Sexy. In kind of a dangerous way. Isra laughed and touched the cloth patch. Well, in that case, perhaps it was worth it. For several minutes, the two drank their tea and enjoyed each other's company in silence. The last few weeks had been an exhausting series of hearings, tribunals, and councils, which were all fancy names for a large group of old, powerful people gathering together to yell at her. At that moment, Joseph seemed like the only person on the planet that wasn't trying to destroy her. This was nice, she decided. It didn't change anything, but it didn't need to. She had no control over what was going to happen to her or her team, and any effort to the contrary was Sisyphusian. She would continue to fight, but, just for this moment, it felt really good to just give up. As Joseph finished his tea, he said, Shall I go check on the dish? Isra shook her head. Why bother? My window is almost up anyway. Is that offer for dinner still good? I thought you didn't eat dinner this late, said Joseph standing. Of course. That would be absurd. Breakfast? I know a great place. She didn't know where this thing would go, and, for the first time in her life... She was okay with that. Kronos rolled over in bed and started to put his pants back on. It wasn't strictly needed here in the electric bordello, but it was a hint. Starwood rolled over. Jesus, already? I know we pay by the hour, but this is almost insulting. The woman in bed was technically the same woman he saw before he left Venus, but her look was completely different. She had changed her hair to dark brown, her skin was pale, and her breasts had gone from freakishly huge to quite small, small even by Earth standards, and almost non-existent for the electric bordello. Kronos was tempted to ask if it were possible to spread some engine grease on her face, and maybe figure out a way to get that acrid smell of soldering in her hair, but that was probably a little on the nose. I'm sorry, I just... I've got things to get back to. The woman sat up. What's the matter, Kronos? Is there something wrong? Something I'm not doing right? No, you're fine, said Kronos. In his own head, he added, better than fine. You're perfect, and that's the problem. What the hell happened on Venus? Why do you ask? You were distant before you left. Now, it's like being in bed with a lamp pole. I almost checked to see if your connection was still up at one point. It was like I was just banging away at your avatar. Sorry, my mind is elsewhere. Do you have the files? The woman got up and pulled a plain yellow folder from under the bed. She held it up. I do as I promise. 
What about you? Kronos picked up a small briefcase by the nightstand. He placed it on the bed and opened it. There were three stacks of paper inside, and each one of them was a few hundred pages thick. Starward sucked in a quick breath when she saw it. This is only about a third, said Kronos. There was an ancient ship full of old information. The corporation was never aware this data left the planet. I only just compiled it. I haven't had time to read it all, and there will be more. The woman flipped through the pile with a hunger in her eyes that suggested she might start drooling at any moment. The file, Kronos reminded. The woman tossed the file at him and pulled the briefcase over to her. Kronos opened the folder and began to skin the contents. After a few minutes, he closed it again. He shut his eyes and it disappeared in a flash of white light as he downloaded the files themselves. You told me this was important. Worth all the data from Venus and more. This is just research findings, available in any number of NouveauNet science journals. Starward glared at him. There's nothing like this anywhere. These came from Amir Jakario's personal files. Top secret, even among high-ranking ministers. Look at page 15. Kronos closed his eyes. The folder appeared again, and he opened it to the page she indicated. He skimmed for a while, and then began to read out loud. Given everything we know, it is impossible for the vessels that were covered in low Earth orbit to have originated from this planet. How then two human children came to be inside is possibly the greatest mystery. Flip to the last page, said Starwood, leaning back on the bed. Kronos flipped to the end and started reading. The mental state of the boy since we began the experiments has deteriorated dramatically. The girl is holding up better, but I can see signs that she will share the same affliction. It is clear to me that the lab environment is doing nothing but harm to these children. To that end, I have put in a request. I don't know if the Military Science Council will even consider it, but I don't see any other choice. I want Isra and Shamir to live with me, and I will raise them as my own. Kronos looked up, and the folder disappeared again. Isra never mentioned a brother. Starwood rolled her eyes and said in a sarcastic tone, Really? The brother is the most unbelievable part of that. What about not being from Earth? Kronos didn't let her finish before he unplugged. The world disappeared, and he found himself sitting in his chair at home, surrounded by his equipment. He reached over to the main terminal to open a new application. A series of icons floated in the air around his head, and he selected one. Then he was surrounded by thousands on thousands of points of light. Each was one of the millions of ministry files he had access to. He spoke the words, Shamir Jakario. The points of light started spinning around him as his computer system accessed each and every file looking for any mention. It was a search that would take days, maybe even weeks, if he committed to a full scan of all known classified documents. Months, if he tried to access corporate accounts. But he already knew what he would find. There would be the odd person with a similar name, but he'd be able to refine and discount those search results quickly. Kronos took off his goggles and sat back in his chair. So, Isra has a brother, a brother that does not exist. The implication that she was not from Earth didn't bother him. Ministry files were often full of strange conclusions and wild speculation. Kronos always suspected that most ministry officials were frustrated boys with wild imaginations. But Isra existed. There were no records of her before she was ten, but she existed. He pulled on his goggles and watched as the program jumped from file to file at amazing speed. Shamir Jakario, he said out loud. 
What happened to you? You have been listening to The Ruins of Empire, Templum Veneris, the second book of The Ruins of Empire Project. The Ruins of Empire podcast was written by Jeremy L. Jones and produced by Sean Vincent. Cover art was by Nick Martin. Music was Predator by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com, licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 license. Huh? What relationships are you? Know, you don't know if any relationship is going to turn out well. What if it goes bad? How the f*** do you know unless we try? Yeah, going off topic. <laughs> you, you, you okay? Yes. Can I tell us a good thing or a bad thing? I'm getting, I'm getting into your book, definitely. I guess there's that. I'm yelling at your book. I don't yell at books I don't like. I am learning to live with it. And there are some advances in cybernetics I am considering. Oh, shit. <laughs> Ready for that cybernetic eye, right, Jeremy? Come on, book three, book three, let's go. City of Geeks. Independent new media produced in Idaho.